Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now, Dr. Christopher Shannon. He's the author, most recently, of American Pilgrimage, a historical journey through Catholic life in a new world. He's associate professor in the Department of History at Christendom College. He specializes in Irish-American history, American Catholic history, and historiography. His other books include Bowery to Broadway, The American Irish in Classic Hollywood Cinema, Conspicuous Criticism, Tradition, the Individual, and Culture in Modern American Social Thought, and The Past as Pilgrimage, Narrative, Tradition, and the Renewal of Catholic History. Chris, it's a great pleasure to have you with me. Thank you. Well, Al, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Let's talk uh, about historiography to begin with, doing history. Uh, (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I know. That's that's the last thing my students want to talk about. (laughs) Well, before I returned to the Catholic Church, I observed a debate going on among evangelical Protestants, uh, George Marsden, uh, one of them, Mark Knoll, another, and uh, appreciated, uh, you know, their attempt to think Christianly about uh, the, the history. And I've been looking for Catholics who have that same kind of uh, ability to uh, be up with the current scholarship uh, and can tell the story of the Church, uh, hopefully, but uh, not triumphalistically. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think you know what I'm trying to say. Talk to me. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's, about that's great. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm amazed that <laughs> you're right where I am because that that debate uh, around George Marsden's work uh, was pretty much well one of the things that set me on the road to eventually ended up with the American pilgrimage. Yeah. I I was one of the one of the few Catholic participants in that debate, <laughs> and okay. uh, if anything, I sometimes think they didn't go quite far enough. And uh, but I made very good friends in that. Um, uh, in that conversation, and that's that's what I was trying to do is to say like, well, okay, you know, look at these. Uh, these Mar- Marsden made some good points. I think he didn't go quite far enough. But what about Catholics? You know, yeah. can can Catholics do the same thing? And I have been I was amazed even when I was working at Notre Dame, and then since then uh, that the Catholics are very, Catholic scholars at least are very very resistant to this. Yep. and so that's so. So far in the Catholic world, it's kind of split between either you know the popular triumphalistic stuff, or the the scholarly stuff that, you know, to my mind tends to be almost like too critical. Sure, you know, they say warts and all, but we never get past the warts. It seems, <laughs> you know. um, and so uh, that's what I tried to do uh, before this book, uh, the uh, Pastus Pilgrimage, was an effort by uh, myself and my colleague uh, Christopher Bloom, who's at Augustine Institute now, to kind of, um, you know, theorize it. So, yeah. Okay, here's the yeah. big issues, and, and how, how would we conceptualize what this Catholic history would look like, and, you know, draw on some examples of um, ancient models that are good and current ones, like the work of Eamon Duffy and such. Um, and then after it's like, okay, people say, well, you've got the theory now, you know, yeah. <laughs> you've talked the talk, now walk the walk. Do it, yeah. Know, what would this yeah. actually look like? And so it's like, well, okay, here it is. Uh, uh, and rather than, you know, focus on just one uh, small uh, particular issue, I, I thought, especially because of the situation of American Catholic history, they really needed a, a big narrative, something to, to kind of situate people and orient people in a way that that brings them into again the the, the best of the scholarship, but in an accessible way, uh, but also in a way that is while while critical, you know, ultimately 
you know, sympathetic to to the church and you know not out to get the church. Yeah. And that's yeah. you know something that I found the scholarship. And some of this is always you know, some of it's personal animus. Some of it's just that this is what scholars do. You know that we were all we've got this kind of gotcha element about yeah. us that yeah. we're going to show. We're going to expose you know the truth about <laughs> about the past that uh, it's been covered up and investigative journalists you know. And yep. such. And, uh, there's there's some you know there's a place for that but it's like when that's all there is then uh, right you know there's just why why study the past then if it's if it's all just bad right right no exactly it, it um the resistance of Catholic historians is that for professional reasons that they feel if they are working from uh, a Catholic or an openly Catholic perspective that they'll be suspected yeah. of not dealing with the data uh, even-handedly or fairly? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of things going on. Certainly that, uh, that, has, that has been an issue from way back, uh, and that even, uh, you know, I think in modern scholarship, you know, with the idea of objectivity, there's always the, the concern that, uh, you know, you're going to be... Uh, advocating for a group and so compromising your objectivity. Mm-hmm. But the bar has traditionally been very, very high for Catholics, uh, you know, and, and, and they've, they've kind of felt this. And uh, just from, from the beginning in the early 20th century, the fact that so many of the, the Catholic scholars, Catholic historians were priests, that yeah. was enough to say, oh, well, a priest can't be objective. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, Catholics have some of that uh, concern. Um, some of it is... Uh, you know, I would I would say certain somewhat flawed uh, notions of the relation between faith and reason, and you know, pure yeah. reason, you know, like the natural law, da da da. You know, that's right. that's that's reason, and then there's faith. Some of that, and then some of it also, I think, is uh, coming out of the 1960s. This kind, uh, the Land O'Lakes Conference, this kind of declaration of independence from the clergy. Yeah. You know that. Yeah. Uh, uh, that the Catholic, those many of these scholars were still uh, priests, though sometimes ex-priests by the time they were writing their books. But this sense, like we have to show that we are independent from right. the church, that so we can think for ourselves. And That's all right. That. Uh, which you know, many certainly other religious groups, Protestant groups, had to do that. But with Catholics, still seem to be making having to make that argument like that's what's what's kind of frustrated me with the the marsden business you know he's somebody he's he himself is from a reformed tradition right. so they have a you know a little more meaty intellectually but he was speaking to uh, largely to evangelicals mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and they're a group that you know let's just say is not generally thought very highly of yeah. among yeah. intellectuals in america that's so they're true. a group that has every reason to be as defensive and concerned as catholics were you know 50 years ago but they were willing to uh, embrace Marsden's ideal, you know, and, and kind of incorporate the best of modern scholarship while still being, you know, in some sense, uh, confessionally evangelical. Mm-hmm. You know, they're mm-hmm. just, they're more willing to be upfront about that in a way that, that, that Catholics were not. And a lot of, you know, Marsden was at Notre Dame when this debate yeah. was going on. Yeah. And I, I, was, I was there at that time, and I witnessed... A lot of these exchanges, and again and again, whoever they brought up there to give the Catholic view would be, well, no, 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 you know, the sciences are autonomous, you know, reason <laughs> must stand alone, and all. Like, uh, <laughs> well, that's a, this is actually uh, one it, of the it, things it, that concerns me. Here we're at a time in history where everybody's willing to talk about uh, a, a womanist reading of history or a queer yeah, reading yeah. of history or, you know, I mean, why is it that evangelicals or Catholics uh, cannot have a Catholic reading of history? 
Yeah, that's one of the uh, points I've made over the years, and then I, I come back to it in the uh, uh, in the conclusion of this book. That is, like, is that at the time the Catholics are are talking all talking about objectivity and detachment? You know, that the politics at the time is the personal is political. You know that, <laughs> right? right. Uh, and then that then the personal becomes professional. And as you say, even though you know a lot of the the work of you know Mark at least. Gotten kind of worse in recent years, but the, the you know the work of Marxists and feminists in the sixties and seventies and eighties, you know it it did it was it was good it, it illuminated the past, but it was very clearly you know from the heart, if yeah. you will, that they yeah. had more than just a professional agenda here, and that's fine. You know if, if you balance that, uh, that can be good. That can again your your personal commitments can be illuminating, but Catholics have just oh, no 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 we can't do that. You know yeah. that would be corrupting. Uh, or scholarship, and I'd say, well, look, geez, you, you say, you know, such and such feminist that she's a good scholar and she's a feminist. <laughs> such and such scholar is a Marxist, and you you respect their work. Yep. Uh, they clearly have commitments, ideological commitments, uh, and they keep them in in balance. They don't let them, you know, the, the good ones don't let them overpower the scholarship. Well, can't we just do that with <laughs> with uh, our faith? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it it does seem crazy. But, uh, well, you start the book off uh, speaking about uh, Guadalupe and Our Lady of Guadalupe. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is, yeah. Which is uh, not the place a lot of uh, American historians would begin a story, even about Catholic America. So tell me why you start with Our Lady of Guadalupe. Yeah. Well, uh, a couple, just, you know, historically, chronologically, she does, uh, you know, she comes from the, the Spanish... Um, uh, period, which is the the kind of original Catholic period, uh, but rather than, but you know, she comes after you know a good generation or so after uh, after Columbus certainly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I start with her because to me the, the Guadalupe and her story frames the whole story yeah. because it is not just simply you know a miraculous appar- apparition of the Virgin Mary. There have been many of those throughout history, mm-hmm. but it's one with particular import for both its time and then everything that comes after. Um, uh, Lady Guadalupe, again, famously, is the Virgin Mary, but she appears as an Aztec princess. Yeah. Uh, she she doesn't, you know, for, I don't know, for Northern Europeans like me or something, well, that's, that's kind of Spanish, isn't it? Darker skin, <laughs> olive, Mediterranean, but no, no, no. Her garb and everything is just very distinctly not Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like, why would... Our Lady appear like that, and not just like that, but to a native person, yeah. Juan Diego, the lowest of the low. And it was, of course, you know, her her at the most basic level for the time, her affirmation of the dignity of native people, and also the dignity of native culture, and a signal that uh, this faith in the new world it's 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 going to be continuous with the past. You know, uh, uh, the Virgin Mary is still the mother of of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's still there, but she's going to look different. And it's that that kind of particularity that uh, was so important to the time to give dignity to the, the native peoples and ultimately even the, the the new world Spanish who felt looked down upon by the old world Spanish. Um, but be, beyond her importance for the, the Spanish and Mexican uh, Catholic story that continues certainly on into the United, what's now the United States, is I, I take that as a kind of a metaphor for the, the, the general uh, um, bringing together of the universal in particular through culture that characterized the church at its best through in the United States from the 19th 
uh, through the middle of the 20th century with, with the immigrant church, mm-hmm. the immigrant church, and then the, the kind of ethnic afterglow of that into the middle of the 20th century, where you know people from all over Europe with different Catholic traditions, different cultural traditions, different languages in many cases. You know, the Polish, the Italian, the Germans, and those rotten Irish, um, <laughs> and uh, all coming to you know being thrown together right. and coming up with a new uh, you know, expression of the faith, the one rooted in those old world cultures. Uh, Chris, hold it there. We've got to take a break. We'll come back and, and pick up this question of the enculturation of the gospel. My guest, Dr. Christopher Shannon, the book, American Pilgrimage, A Historical Journey Through Catholic Life in a New World. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Christopher Shannon, author of American Pilgrimage, A Historical Journey Through Catholic Life in New World. We ended the last segment talking about um, Our Lady of Guadalupe, and what's fascinating here is that um, she identifies herself as uh, the ever-Virgin Holy Mary of Guadalupe, a a title which is linked to a Marian shrine in Spain. But uh, her image on the Tilma bears little resemblance to uh, European renderings of Our Lady. Uh, skin tone, facial features uh, are much, uh, much more closer, closer to native than to European. Uh, so is her clothing. And I guess, uh, Chris, the point there is that when God proclaims uh, his word, he proclaims it in a fashion that is understandable to the people he's trying to communicate. Uh, so in this case, uh, he's trying to communicate to a, a, a native people. And uh, what comes from that, particular cultures come out of uh, our worship. So if we're German, if we're Spanish, uh, if we're Irish, uh, we don't just worship in the abstract, we worship in the culture in which we've been embedded. And people can, if they want to know what, how we understand the Catholic faith, um, we don't just present to them an abstract list of beliefs. We ask them to look at what our, the culture that has grown out of our cult. That's a, a clumsy way, but I think you know the point I'm making. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. That that's. Uh, I think it's it's something that it's an understanding the church always had and kind of lost. And this is there's this weird trade-off, you know, that the the people of uh, say pre-modern times, you know, medieval Catholics had in many ways a much richer holistic Catholic culture than we have today. Mm-hmm. But ask them about the Trinity, and I don't think you'd like the answer. Right, you know, right, exactly. Were, in terms of the kind of the doctrines, the kind of catechesis that we stress so much now, uh, nobody would say that they were uh, particularly well catechized. Right. That was the problem, like when you get the, the when the heresy, the Albigensian heresy, what the the friars would find, like, oh my gosh, these people don't know anything. No wonder they're so susceptible to yeah. this. And so. Yeah. The you know the an earlier time did culture really well, and then modernity for a while did catechesis very well, 
but kind of lost the culture. And then, you know, when you lose the culture, then you lose the catechesis too, because what's the, the, the purpose of it? What's the point of it? Uh, not just to memorize a list of doctrines and such. Right. And so, right. yeah, I think that that's my, um, one of the, the themes throughout the book of um, jumping off from Guadalupe is that the, uh, even when the church was in a process in the 19th century, you know, the rise of literacy and such, of, of improving catechesis, uh, there also it's developed along with that uh, a kind of a very a rich culture, uh, rich uh, rooted in locality, the local parish, and you know rooted in old world traditions. But you know obviously they they have to be adapted to the new because mm-hmm. since so many old world traditions were so place specific, you know you can't bring that place with you, and right. so the, the devotions had to change. But still, um, that the uh, the the faith was uh, was lived as a whole way of life, not simply as a kind of a, a an affirmation of a set of teachings mm-hmm. and such. And that was to me uh, the the kind of real strength of the church. Uh, sometimes, you know, I think when I hear these debates and people moaning and groaning about you know how bad things are today, and they look back to the earlier time, and it's like that's when everybody knew their faith. <laughs> and you know, maybe some of that's true, but you know, that wasn't what kept it all together right. you know it was it was the culture and particularly a culture lived in in particular places these these urban neighborhoods um where people were bound together in in place you know that's um i think that was the the heartbeat of the church in that earlier time in america that becomes a problem doesn't it for the bishops where you have uh people who are identifying with their ethnic heritage, uh, you know, German, uh, you know, yeah. uh, French. I don't know how strong French was in America, but certainly in Canada. French-Canadian. French-Canadian, yeah. In New England, yeah. And, and the bishops had to, you know, begin to place Irish priests in German parishes and things of that sort. Were they afraid that the culture— would somehow suffocate uh, the faith, uh, that people would no longer recognize the center uh, of the gospel. They would only be involved in making sure they had, you know, uh, you know, corned beef and cabbage, uh, you know, on <laughs> Sunday dinners. So what? Yeah. Well, there. You know that that would be that would be the best reason for them to be concerned, and unfortunately, that wasn't always the okay. reason. Okay. All right. Uh, some of this gets back to where we began with uh, Catholic scholars, like you know, wanting to not wanting to seem biased or too kind of pro-Catholic. Mm-hmm. That the the equivalent of that in the 19th century was bishops, and again, many of them Irish or Irish American bishops, who were concerned that the church was already perceived as foreign because of its gotcha. faith. Okay. And if you add that foreign faith on top of that, all these cultures and all these different languages, then that's just going to give ammunition to nativists. So yes. some of it was certainly that concern about what's how's this going to look on the outside. Some of it as well, though, I think does point to um, what what you were getting at, is that in the 19th century, you know, as uh, people are uprooted from the, the, the rural villages and the ways of life that sustain them in their faith forever, in the sense that a more kind of self-conscious faith did need to be developed. And so there was a fear that, um, you know, people might cling to these old customs, 
but that's they're never going to last because they're in this this new situation and if they keep clinging to that when those are gone there'll be nothing left and mm-hmm. so we, you know we need to instill in them a more uh more you could say intellectual just certainly more intentional and conscious culture and these these old world traditions are getting in the way of that now the in the, in the best of situations they were able to come to some kind of synthesis um, but that that definitely was a concern, and here's where I think that concern, you know, almost went kind of went too far. And this is this is the Irish versus everybody else in many right. ways. That the the Irish were at the vanguard of a new kind of Catholicism, sometimes called the the, the, the Catholic revival or the devotional revolution. That, that's coming primarily out of Rome. Uh, the you know the popes see this new situation. They see that certainly after the French Revolution, how the church has been under assault, and they say we need a more militant church. We need uh, Catholics that are are unified and and catechized, and you know uh, a united block, if you will, against all those bad things that are happening out in the world. And so they. Uh, certainly promoted catechesis, but also a standard set of devotions, the kind of things that most people now associate with the pre-Vatican II Church. Mm-hmm. Most of that's like maybe 100 years before Vatican II. It's not okay. from the Council of Trent to the President. You know, right. It's these devotions. Yeah, think, uh, things like the 40 Hours Devotion, I mean, that would be a kind of a good example of one. Something that can be done anywhere, you know, in, in, in a church. It's not tied to local, you know, local places or anything like that. That the... Um, uh, the popes wanted to promote this to create a kind of a, an international common Catholic culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's certainly, you know, there's virtues to that. There's good things about that. But the fact is they were dealing with Catholics that are still very much rooted in uh, in these, these local cultures. And even when they were, you know, kind of uprooted and thrown across an ocean and land in America, when they're trying to get their bearings, they're, you know, they look to the old. So yeah. even if, you know, like, well, we, you know, we, we're not in our village anymore, but our, our village uh, had a, a patron saint. And so we're going to, we're going to name our church after that patron saint and we're going to still celebrate their, uh, their feast day mm-hmm. and such like that. Mm-hmm. So they still were, were attached to that. And the, uh, the Irish American clergy often saw that as an obstacle to the, to what, you know, they considered the real kind of Catholicism. Really that was needed okay. uh, in in the modern world. So there's you know there's these these tensions. Like a lot of the people sometimes, you know, uh, again who get nostalgic look back and say, oh, you know, back in the good old days there was never any conflict in the church. It's like there was plenty of conflict. It just it wasn't particularly theological. Right. You know, it was more right. kind of cultural and ethnic and, and devotional. But they you know they weren't they weren't debating high points of theology or anything like that. But there was still conflict. Right. Uh, though you know if I had a choose between the two, you know, the, the kind of cultural conflicts are a little safer, you know, like, sure, sure. Uh, they can only go so far, uh, uh, and, you know, I, I prefer those to the theological conflicts we have today, but it, but still, you know, it, there, there's conflict that's kind of always going to be with us. What was the heresy of Americanism, and is it still alive today? Yeah, and that's that ties into some of this, um, the you know some some historians call it the phantom heresy because right. it never you know it never really existed and you know it's well, I'll 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 try to ex- explain here the well Rome throughout the 19th century was very pleased with what was going on in America because they saw the church losing the working class in Europe for a variety of reasons the big one being the church was still kind of part of some entrenched interests but in America they say the churches are full yeah we've got the working class so 
they, they must be doing something right over there in America. So they're, they're very high on America in practice, but they are concerned about America in theory because let's let's face it. I mean, the popes aren't saying anything good about republics and, right. and the new political order, and certainly in the political pluralism, all that stuff. They don't. They're very suspicious of that, and they're very aware that America is a, a dominantly Protestant culture, mm-hmm. and they're concerned that the Protestant culture and the, and the American politics will uh, bleed over into the church, particularly in the areas of democratic governance. So you know to make to turn the church Catholic Church into like a congregational church where mm-hmm. the you know the, the congregation elects their pastors things right. like that, and then that that enduring Protestant principle of private judgment right. you know that uh, it's not you know, church certainly has a tradition of interior spirituality but that's different from I get to decide what's right or what's true mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so those are its fears those um, weren't really. Uh, uh, realistic fears in terms of just how the life of the church was lived in in general, they end up kind of getting mixed together with these other things. But the real, so that's that's the you could see, just put a place marker there. That's the, it's in the back of the minds of the popes. They're they're concerned about this, but um, the real the real fight that is going on is this ethnic fight. And okay. so the Germans in particular are saying the Irish are trying, are destroying the faith because they're, tr- they're taking our language and culture away. They're trying to make us like them. And, um, you know, they're trying to Americanize us and take our faith away. Okay. That's, well, uh, okay. we've got to take a break here. I hear the music coming up. We'll come back uh, on the other side of the break, Chris, with the, uh, the charge that the Irish are destroying the faith of the Germans. And we'll pick it up from there. My guest, Dr. Christopher Shannon, his book, American Pilgrimage. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Christopher Shannon. Uh, American Pilgrimage, the book, a historical journey through Catholic life in a new world. We talked a little bit about the Americanist heresy uh, last segment. Uh, at that time, the Holy See is looking at the United States. Uh, the churches are full here. Uh, we haven't lost the workers like the church had in many European nations. Uh, the concern, though, the Holy See is that America is really a Protestant country, and so they're afraid that uh, Catholics are going to begin demanding a congregationalist form of uh, church governance, uh, and also they might slide into this idea of private interpretation of Scripture. But uh, as as we were talking about this, you pointed out, Chris, that the bigger problem was that things like cultural conflict. Irish, or Germans are accusing the Irish of kind of destroying their faith. So why don't you pick it up from there? Yeah, yeah, and it, it is. A, this is a very complicated issue, but the. Uh, the definitely the, like that ethnic conflict um, uh, is, is 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 real, and and the Germans are using that to kind of you know it's almost like I'm going to tell Dad on you, you know, <laughs> hey Dad, <laughs> yeah. uh, the, you may think things look good here, but actually they're driving Germans away, uh, and Germans especially because of the Lutheran thing and the common language. That right, was a that's danger. right. But so that ethnic conflict is one. Other big issue: the public schools. Yes, okay. and again, here's I, I, I bring back our uh, what we talked about at the beginning with these Catholics that don't, you know, that don't want to appear to be special pleading or anything in, in writing Catholic history. Some influential Catholic uh, bishops 
were embarrassed by the Catholic school system. They thought that 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 made you know that set Catholics apart in a bad way. How can we convince the rest of Americans that we're good Americans when we reject you know the the the, the, the common school, the, cradle, yeah. the nursery of of democracy, the common school, the public yeah. school, and so some of them argued that. Um, we need to embrace the public school and, you know, still have religious education, but maybe do that kind of after hours or something. And this is where, like, the Irish kind of divided, because there were some Irish, uh, like John Ireland in uh, St. Paul, who were who thought that Catholic schools were bad, we could still provide religious education uh, without the, the, the negative side effect of separatism. Uh, but some Irish-American clergy were insistent on the... Um, on having separate uh, Catholic school system, especially I'm from Rochester, New York. Uh, Bishop McQuaid, Bernard McQuaid, he was one of the big uh, defenders of the Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so this is a controversy too. And some people are saying, you know, going to Dad and saying, "Look, this this guy wants to abolish public school uh, Catholic schools, and then that's going to make all Catholics Protestants." So there's all this stuff, right. all this noise going on. And then uh, there's another twist to this that is, is really too much to get into now, but let's just say at the end of it all, when, when Leo issues his letter, A Testament of Valencia, and condemns this thing, Americanism, basically what he's, what he's saying is, hey, the faith has always you know, engaged cultures and, and uh, you know, incorporated the best of these various cultures, but the, cult, you know, the, the faith has to be incorporating the culture and not the other way around. Right. Right. And so Americanism for him was uh, adapting the faith purely to the culture. Okay. You know, like, are you kind of going native in a way? Yeah. And I, I don't, you know, I think except for, you know, a few intellectuals, and there weren't many Catholic intellectuals in America at the time, that was never really a danger, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think. Um, but you, you would ask to, before the break there, is it still around today? I think it does become a danger you know, 50, 60 years later. Yeah. I think in our own time, it, it is very much a danger, although the issue is, and there's lots of issues, but um, there's, you know, the enduring issue of do Catholics belong and, you know, how far can we go to show that we belong? And after World War II, they went pretty far. And now increasingly in more recent decades, it's, it's been it's been politics, you know, that yeah. Catholics well, kind of define themselves by their politics, by, you know, whether it's right or left, you know, American politics, and they kind of conform the faith to that. And that's that's something as well, I think, that Leo 100 years ago would have been concerned about. It wasn't an issue 100 years ago, but certainly in our own time it is. Well, it, you, we, we often see on this, this political dimension, we see Catholics, you know, championing uh Liberty, uh, championing freedom, yeah, yeah. Uh, as though that's the highest uh, goal uh, that we can uh, achieve. When in fact, uh, freedom, at least from, as I understand it, from a Catholic perspective, freedom is the precondition for the development of virtue, and it's virtue we ought yeah. to be trying to cultivate. So then, that, and how, how, what the the role of the state in that whole you know, statecraft is soulcraft argument yeah. uh, is hard to describe. And so what ends up happening is you have many Catholics who uh, believe that uh, freedom, if you, there's nothing, there's no, no more important uh, civic virtue than emphasis on uh, liberty and freedom. Uh, so capitalism, uh, they forget the moral and juridical framework that uh, John yeah. Paul II emphasized in 
centismus annus, uh, and they become just another another class of the right. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, again, we've this this cuts across the the political spectrum. And I think you're 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 exactly right with your emphasis on freedom. What's what's I've noticed in some uh, you know public statements by Catholics that when they're um, they're when they want to criticize something, but their basis will be not so much that it's wrong. But it's a violation of religious freedom. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. it's like yeah. like if religious freedom because that, that's the safe term to use. And you know, this goes back to seeing the Tatis Humanae and that that early Vatican II, post-Vatican II moment where you know uh, Catholics were all you know they were just like a kid with a new toy. Wow, <laughs> you know, we could never say religious freedom before <laughs> because the church didn't exactly uh, approve of it. Right, but right. Got it, and so that became the answer to everything. And and that proves um, that we're real Americans too. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. rather than saying, okay, uh, this to me is a real challenge. For it's like religious freedom means that I am free to be a Catholic in public. You know, <laughs> religious freedom doesn't mean like I can think whatever I want in the <laughs> privacy of my own room, but, right. you know, to be Catholic in public. And, you know, of course, if you're in a pluralistic democracy, you can't just like throw Thomas Aquinas at people or something. It's right. catechism. You need to be right. able to speak a variety of languages. But in the end, and this gets back to what we were talking about earlier when you mentioned, you know, kind of feminists or Marxists, you know, the uh, feminists are very free. Feminist politicians are very free to make their ultimate arguments based on, well, this is, you know, this is what it means to be a free woman or something. And, um, you know, so so Catholics, again, need to speak multiple languages. But in the end, if somebody says like, well, you, uh, you oppose abortion because you're a Catholic, it's like, well, yeah, that's yeah. one of the reasons I oppose abortion. <laughs> exactly. there's, there's others. Yeah, <laughs> you know, people uh, people opposed abortion. You know, that weren't Catholic. You know, long before Roe v. Wade. There's lots of reasons to oppose abortion. But if you're going to force me to confess that being Catholic is one of them, then I'm going to admit it. But <laughs> you know, uh, it's not the only reason. And staying with this a little bit, um, we also have a problem on the left side of things in, in which certain. Uh, ideas of justice uh, are kind of considered the high, uh, the highest goal. Uh, so yeah. you have social justice uh, emphases or movements uh, in American Catholicism, which seem to uh, have no, apparently no concern for, uh, say, the issue of abortion. So you find those yeah, yeah, often yeah. on the left glad to identify with uh, those who are strongly democratic socialists uh, and are pro-choice, and Catholics side with them because they happen to think that uh, the particular form of government that these allies or co-belligerents hold uh, is the highest civic virtue that they can pursue, and they, again, lose the emphasis uh, on virtue. Yeah, and that's that's been the big uh, kind of fault of the left, that the you know, there is kind of coming out of a, an earlier time, particularly kind of New Deal era, New Deal World War II, where, you know, Catholics are just kind of flexing their muscles with uh, the papal social teaching, and it all seems yeah. kind of in line with certain things because, you know, pretty much sex isn't on the table. Well, excuse me, that's a terrible image, but. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right, right. You know, uh, uh, you know, even, you know, there's there's birth control and, and such in, in the 1930s, but that's not that's not what. FDR is talking about because, you know, half the country's out of work and stuff. Right. So there was a lot of common ground and goodwill built up. 
and then, but then when it came to these more contentious issues that were kind of back burner issues in the earlier time, they, they, they touched much more directly on aspects of church teaching that were much more, you know, clear and you know, the, the, less room for potential judgment. Then Catholics in those positions of power, and this is especially you know post Kennedy, they had to make a choice. Look, do we do we continue our commitment to helping the poor um, and these justice issues, but continue to insist on the truth in these other areas, uh, and then just you know duke it out with our 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 former allies and say, look, no, you you guys have to come around to our side and see the consistency here, and which a lot of Catholics did into the early 70s. Mm-hmm. It's like you know our opposition to abortion comes from our general. Uh, care for the poor, for the for the least among us, right. um, and you know, you you guys are the ones that are abandoning that when you say oh, the way to deal with this difficult pregnancy is just kill the baby or something. Right. That's, right. that's kind of a version of the old kill the poor argument. The problem with the, the poor is there's too many of them. Yeah. Solve the problem of poverty by eliminating poor people. You know? <laughs> and Catholics for a while there, you know, they they made that 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 argument, but it just. I don't know, you know, the other historians can explain the uh, the specific reasons, certainly, you know, the, the allure of power, but also, again, this sense, I think, that it is an enduring sense of, oh, you know, if we take this really strong Catholic stand, they'll say we're not American. Right. And, you know, there, there was good reason to fear that in the, in the early pro-life movement. There were the the proponents of abortion were just waiting for some Catholic priest to get up there and Absolutely. speak against abortion. Is ah, yeah. see, see, Catholics are trying to control us. Yeah, so, I mean, it's even in some of the correspondence uh, of letters written at that time that they liked the idea of having the American bishops as their enemy. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, and so, so, you know, it's it's a real concern, but you know, people had to show more moral courage, I guess, than they did. Let me ask. Uh, how you understand the the story is often told, make it real fast here, the story is told that uh, Catholics come over from Europe, they're immigrants, uh, they have strong uh, ethnic uh, culture around them. Um, But uh, in 1920, immigration laws stop. Catholics begin to assimilate into America. They begin rising, especially after the Second World War, they're rising the socioeconomic uh, scale. And then in 1960, JFK is elected. Catholics are really Americans now. Second Vatican Council follows. And what happens is there's a coll- seems to be a collapse of Catholic culture. Uh, women religious drop off. Priesthood numbers drop off. Um, you know, what happened? Yeah, well, that's uh, there's uh, sadly there's a good amount of truth to that story, Um, and that's kind of like where I you know my my chapter seven in the book you know kind of gets to to that point. But I do you know I I I don't want to put on rose colored glasses, but I also don't want to be gloom and doom. And so in the last two chapters, I do point to kind of positive development, certainly on the, you know, both the kind of social justice and pro-life front that for all of the, you know, failures of of courage, if you will, in certain aspects of Catholic public life with respect to pro-life, the fact is that Catholics, um, some Catholics did, you know, take the the leadership in in the pro-life. Yeah, very definitely. And that's a good thing. Um, Catholics continued their commitment to serving the poor uh, and, and peace and justice, you know, the peace movement too. And finally, the bishops finally saying what the church has said for decades before that, you know, the, 
the use of nuclear weapons is impermissible. You, yeah. know, you can't kill people, um, can't kill civilians. So all of that, those are good things. And then, though I guess this is more controversial now, I, I end on looking at uh, liturgy. And as you know, as difficult as that has been, in some sense, the liturgy, the collapse of the liturgy after Vatican II was mm-hmm. one of the real warning signs of, of danger to come. Still, you know, um, I try, I try to end on a kind of a mustard seed to know, you know, that there it's you know yes, a lot of things went bad, but there are, we we do see seeds of yeah. um, of renewal, and and that some you know you, you got to focus on that, and that you know that can be the basis for true. Renewal. Yeah, I agree with you, and your work is certainly uh, watering those seeds of renewal, Chris. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today, and I hope we can talk okay. again in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. Christopher Shannon, American Pilgrimage, a historical journey through Catholic life in a new world. <laughs>